This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Chris Alt, Chief Revenue Officer at Cooper University Healthcare in New Jersey. Chris, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Laura. Pleasure to be here. Now, I know we'll have a lot to talk about. There's so much happening in healthcare, and it's particularly for, for you. Um, but before we dive into the questions, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure, yeah. So I've been in revenue cycle for almost my entire career, all of it in the New Jersey, Philadelphia market. I'm currently at Cooper University Healthcare in Camden, New Jersey, right across the river from Philadelphia. I joined Cooper five years ago as a revenue cycle vice president. And during my time here, I've also had the unique opportunity to lead our musculoskeletal service line. We call it the Cooper Bone and Joint Institute. It's a multidisciplinary service line that consists of orthopedics, podiatry, rheumatology, PTOT, speech therapy departments. So for two years in the middle of my tenure here, um, I had the chance to lead a service line and navigate through a pandemic also which, um, while running Revenue Cycle, which gave me really, really a great 360 insight into the operational strategic elements of acute care um, and what it takes to, to provide the entire continuum of care that we do. Um, since then, I've stepped back into finance full-time, and I currently serve as our chief revenue officer for the system. In this role, I oversee all of our revenue-related functions for both the hospital and medical groups, which includes managed care and payer strategy, registration, financial clearance, case management, utilization review, as well as our coding, billing, rev integrity, and training and education functions. Fantastic. Wow. Well, that is, you know, a huge amount of experience. And what was it like to jump in with the service line management, especially thinking about orthopedics was in a unique position during the pandemic, you know, to try to figure out where that fits into how people, uh, you know, need to have care, but it's not necessarily life threatening to, to have your knee replaced or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, I was very fortunate that um, our leadership thought of me to step in and stretch into that role for that period of time. It started in 2019. Candidly, I knew nothing about service line strategy or, or, or operations, um, but really learned a lot throughout that period, particularly around you know, how access to care is created and how templates work and um, you know, a lot about practice management and, and managing physicians and expectations and those sorts of things. Um, you know, as it relates to the pandemic, you know, like I said, we, we, the Cooper Bone and Joint Institute is, is multidisciplinary. So you're right. Within orthopedics, there were certain subspecialties that didn't require maybe life-threatening care at the time. But we also have orthopedic trauma, uh, which was very busy during that time. We also had, um, you know, our, our rheumatology teams that were busy taking care of immunocompromised uh, patients who really needed their rheumatology care, um, our PT, OT, and speech therapy teams had to figure out creative ways to give patients the physical therapy that they needed, um, maybe in a touchless sort of way, right? So it was um, definitely challenging, learned a lot, very, very grateful for that opportunity. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. You know, and really, it seems like it would speak volumes in terms of, you know, taking the opportunity, like you said, with something you know nothing about, but really just soaking in all the information and all the um, opportunities that you had to, to learn a lot about those different areas. Now, thinking about where you're at today as the chief revenue officer, what are some of the issues you're spending most of your time on? What's really top of mind for you? So there are some overarching trends we're dealing with, which are presenting some significant financial and operational challenges. The first is, is really no surprise to you or any of the listeners to this podcast over the last couple of years. 
you generally speaking, it is getting continuously more difficult to get paid timely and accurately for the care we're providing. And the reasons are multifactorial. Um, we've all heard them. Labor shortages, both on our side and on the payer side, um, burdensome claim delays, increased denial activity, increased authorization requirements, tightening admission criteria, um, increased regulatory standards from both federal and state uh, regulatory bodies. Um, we'll get into more detail, I'm sure, but at the end of the day, the result is more rework. And when you compare today to pre-pandemic times, the overall effort, time, and resources required to do our job have all increased significantly. The second thing we're seeing is this concept of, uh, specific to revenue cycle, is this concept of an expanding revenue cycle. Any chance I get, I like to talk about this shift I call from collecting to protecting. Right? It used to be that our job in revenue cycle started at scheduling and was finished when a claim was paid in full. But that is no longer the case. Over the last 12, 18 months, we have seen recruitment and retrospective audit activity ramp up dramatically. And so now, instead of the process stopping at a paid claim, the quote-unquote cycle has been lengthened. We've added more steps that extend sometimes years beyond the time a claim is paid. So. For us, we have to figure out, well, how do you staff for that? What's the best way to organize a skilled, tactical, efficient way to manage that activity, respond accordingly? Luckily for us, we started building years ago what I call a revenue defense strategy, which we've now doubled down on to handle this new wave. We've had to shift some resources downstream, like, for example, from follow-up to revenue defense, but we have leveraged, and we, you know, we've leveraged our third parties in different ways, but we are well positioned to manage it. But while we're managing it, I worry about what's to come and how this is going to look in two or three years. Absolutely. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, it is really interesting. I, I love that term, the revenue defense strategy. It seems like it would be very useful and, and helpful um, when you're thinking about, as you mentioned, the recruitment and auditing as it has been ramping up. Um, when you, you look at a revenue defense strategy, what's different about that? What did you do when you think about staffing? Did you have to hire additional people or was it a situation of, you know, kind of spreading the responsibilities for some of these new um, actions that your team needed to take across the existing team? How did you really uh, think about that? And um, what, I guess, did it take to make that cultural shift? That's a great question. So we, we, we started this about three years ago. Um, and we were economical in the way that we built the team out. So we started, uh, we started by pulling existing resources together. We wanted that team to be multidisciplinary with perspectives from each area of the revenue cycle so that we could make sure we're responding to things in an effective way. Um, so, and then, and then it sort of just evolved organically from there. But, uh, but that team sits centrally here in our revenue cycle and services the whole group. Um, but when you when you think back to why we needed in the first place, right? There's 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 really three things out there that are happening um, that I think we should talk about. One is it's really not a fair playing field, right? So when 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 we talk about the retrospective audits and recruitments and the burden that the providers are under to respond to those, it's a no lose situation for payers and a no win situation for hospitals. I mentioned earlier that the rules, requirements, criteria for authorized care continue to change and tighten. We're jumping through more and more hoops each year to provide care to patients. And of course, the more rules there are, the higher likelihood of error there is. 
but the, many of our commercial payers engage the help of third parties to do their retrospective audits, and their, their fees are often contingency-based. So that model provides incentive to overwhelm providers with volumes of audit activity because they have nothing to really lose by trying. It creates more procedural hurdles for us to overcome and increases the likelihood that something will slip through the cracks. Right? Keep in mind that with each request, timeframes for response, natures of the review, method of delivery, all vary by payer. Anyone listening to this knows in any size health system that payer correspondence can land on anyone's desk at any time. It can go to one of your medical practices, it can go to your billing office, it can land on someone's in someone's inbox who's not even employed by the organization anymore. So all of that increases the likelihood that something will get missed. The bottom line is payers, their auditing contractors have no downside to try and fail. Whereas on our side, uh, the provider side of the equation, there's nothing to be gained and everything to be lost. In an ideal outcome, we spend more money and allocate more resources simply to retain what was already ours in the first place. That's so interesting to hear about and, and just really paints a, a very interesting picture on that dynamic in terms of the payer and the um, health system and how they're working together. I know, you know, whether it's contracting or whether it's on this side of it with the audits and, and the recoupment attempts, um, just really interesting. Do you expect to see more of that in the future? I think so. Um, I think that you know, the, the, it's no secret that the cost of care nationally is uh, uh, continuing to rise. You know, from where I sit, I think that plan sponsors and health plans are looking for any way to cut costs. And one of those strategies is, is retrospective review and recruitment. But, you know, reviewing medical necessity in hindsight is something that I think we should talk about. Because fortunately or unfortunately, medical necessity as it relates to patient status, I'm talking about whether you're an inpatient, you're an observation, or you're an outpatient. It's not cut and dry when it comes to the private commercial payers. Medicare makes it pretty clear, but there's still some gray areas there. But on the, on the commercial side, it's not cut and dry. The rules, the interpretations, they vary by payer. They can even vary by medical directors and UM nurses within the same payer. Right, so we are we are seeing more and more payers adopt time-based criteria and different types of of um, policies when considering inpatient versus observation or outpatient status. But remember, as providers, we are making decisions in real time. When patients present to our hospital, our physicians, our nurses, our APPs, our care management teams are making determinations for patient status based on what we know at the time about the patient that is in front of us. And our focus is always about what is right for the patient. But then 12 or 18 months later, payers can initiate audits to review medical necessity. For example, should this person have been an inpatient? The difference is that by the time those cases are reviewed, there's the advantage of knowing the outcome. Right? We see this with sepsis, uh, where patients will present, they'll appear septic, they'll be admitted, they'll be treated accordingly, and then sometimes turn out not to be septic after all. Well, in that case, we've done what was clinically correct. We've delivered an inpatient level of service, yet those cases are often cherry-picked for review a year or so after the fact because, as it turns out, the patient's care could have been delivered in an outpatient or observation setting. It's just one example, but we're seeing this with other diagnoses that require complex medical decision-making in real time. And I know there's been a lot of national discussion about this. 
Um, I know we're not the only ones, but I feel like this is a big issue. It's, it's an unbalanced playing field when one party is making evidence-based decisions in the fog of battle, I'll call it, while the other one gets to watch the game unfold and then make their bet. You layer that in on top of the you know, complexity of an already stressed healthcare system that's struggling to staff beds and manage throughput and open up access, and it just becomes um, a, a really burdensome challenge. So in my opinion, I think the enhanced spotlight on time-based patient status determination and this retrospective review of medical necessity, it creates a no-win situation for hospitals and our bottom lines. That's so interesting to hear about and, and certainly um, makes a lot of sense just kind of to to dovetail into our earlier conversation about, you know, where everybody is really trying to figure out how to navigate this new world of, of healthcare, um, you know, today with the COVID and, and the economy that is the way it is. So, um, you know, thank you so much for providing such a clear and interesting example of what you're dealing with on a daily basis with the insurance companies and others. Um, you know, when you think about that as the reality and where you're moving to, how are you thinking about growth and development and investments for your team over the next two years or so? What resources do you need more of? Is there anything that you're going to pivot away from? Well, I don't, I don't think there's anything we're going to pivot away from. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're doubling down on this concept of revenue defense. We know that we are going to need resources and skilled um, experts to write appeal letters and respond to audits and, um, you know, communicate and correspond with our payers to present what is the appropriate clinical picture. Um, so I think we'll continue to invest in, in the areas of UM and training and education and documentation improvement because all of those things are critical to make to, to, to you know, I'll, I'll say ensuring success on the back end, uh, as, as, although I just laid out why there is no such thing as ensuring success, right? So, but we're, we're going to keep doubling down on the front end pro processes and training and education that makes our uh, chance of success higher. And, and that is where I see most of our investment to come. But, you know, at the same time, the economic challenges in, in healthcare um, are significant, right? And so, you know, we're dealing with budget shortfalls. Um, you, you read every day. And, you know, to plug Beckers, you read every day about financial results all across the country, and they're not pleasant. So how do you make those investments strategically? How do you repurpose resources? You know, that, that is what we're, we're trying to figure out. Um, I think we'll get there. We'll be smart and thoughtful about it. Luckily, like I said, we had a chassis built a few years ago that we can continue to, to build on top of. That's great to hear and, you know, makes a lot of sense. And um, I know, you know, we've talked a lot about several different issues and challenges, but what are you most excited about right now? What really uh, comes to mind when you think about, you know, the future and, and what is going right? Well, you know, I, I'm excited to see how we respond to this challenging climate. Uh, you know, organizationally, Cooper is well positioned to compete and continue to grow our business in a thoughtful, strategic way. Um, but within our revenue related departments, we're going to continue to lean on our leaders to adapt and think creatively about how to solve these new problems. I am so lucky to be surrounded by an incredible team of really smart, tough people who genuinely have a passion for the work that they do. And in one way, 
this more challenging climate has put more of an emphasis on things we're really good at, like teamwork and efficiency and sharing ideas. Um, I'm excited to continue integrating our teams to unlock more ways to achieve success and create opportunities for our team members to grow and do more. If you sat in our team meetings, I think you'd be really impressed with how knowledgeable everyone is about each other's departments, what everyone can do to improve the overall performance collectively. Um, we have our UM teams feeding our managed care team with ideas for contract language. Our coding teams and billing teams are learning from denial data to create stop gaps ahead of time and stop revenue leakage. We are uh, really focused on sharing data transparently across all of our team members to encourage feedback from anyone with an idea. We've come a long way. I know we're going to continue to do more of that work, um, and it is uh, very, very fun to be a part of. I'm lucky to have a front row seat to watch these these incredible people do what they do. That sounds amazing, and it really seems like you've built an outstanding culture there in terms of you know working together and, and leveraging the expertise from so many different experts that you work with on your team on a daily basis. Yeah, I think you said it perfectly. We, um, our team is, uh, we, we take a lot of pride in the culture we've created. We hold each other accountable. Um, we speak up when something doesn't look right, but at the same time, um, we really push each other to do better and do more, and that has. Um, yielded results that we're very proud of over the last five years since I've been here and even prior to that. Um, and so we're, I'm excited to see what that looks like going forward. I think it will only get better. Fantastic. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really interesting and informative conversation, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.